Good morning. All right. Good. So I think I have a few minutes. I'll try to be fast. <laughs> Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 from verse 19 to 24. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers will be going across the aisle, so please just grab one from them. If you don't have one, please keep it. If you know someone that needs one, please keep it. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 6 from verse 19 to 24. And we'll be studying that together. Um, the title of the sermon is The Question of Identity Beyond Moths, Rust, and Thieves. And what I'll be doing is, one, we'll, I'll read the scripture, we'll pray, and then I'll sort of go through the text, locate us in the context, highlight a couple of things in the text, and then tie it back to identity at the end of it. So if you want to sleep, make sure you wake up when I'm talking about identity. <laughs> but please don't sleep. <laughs> so Matthew chapter 6, from verse 19 to 24. Let me read. So it says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moths, rust, destroy, and thieves can break in to steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moths nor rust can destroy, nor thieves can break in to steal. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your body is full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, then your body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you, or that which is supposed to be light within you, is darkness, how deep is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. You would either love one and hate the other, or you would be devoted to one, you would despise the other. Right? You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Let's pray. Father, we, we are different places here, even though we are gathered as one body before you. And my prayer here, God, is that you will Speak to the depths of our hearts that you will lay a finger on the places where we struggle with the idea of identity and the things we treasure and how we see and whom we serve. We, we do need help, God. I need help, God. So please come speak to us. Make us attentive and available to how you might be leading so that we may hear you. And at the end of it all, let your name and your name alone be glorified so that you are lifted up. We are humbled. We are reminded of your love and we locate our identity in you. And you are glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, when Matthew chapter 6 from verse 19 to 24, uh, let, let me start out by just giving a context and sort of show what's going on, right? So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is baptized, uh, goes into the wilderness, there's the testing, and sort of commences uh, his ministry, so to say, right? And he starts out by saying this, Matthew 4, 17, he says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? I'm going to come back to that idea, but one thing I want to show is, when he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's talking about the availability of the kingdom of God. It would be, for example, like me saying, 
watch out, the coffee table is to the right. Right? It is essentially saying the kingdom of heaven is before you. It's at your doorstep. It's an invitation into life and the kingdom. Right? And so he goes on further, does a couple miracles, visits synagogues, calls his disciples, right? And then we come to the Sermon on the Mount, right? And look at the Sermon on the Mount as if he's laying down a different way of life, right? It's still in that line of the invitation into the kingdom of God. And then he's basically almost given a state of the union, <coughs> excuse me, a way of saying, this is how our lives should look like. And, and what you will see as a theme through the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is more concerned with your heart and why you do things as opposed to the external realization of those actions or the external presentation of them. And, and so the theme is he's always after your heart, right? And he's always going after your heart, right? And one of the things we, we need to look at when we get to Matthew chapter 6, which we talked about the last time uh, we studied together, right? We talked about this idea of not seeking the praise of men. Right, this idea of not going after what will people say about me, which is integral actually to how we define ourselves, right? And and so Jesus uses uh, three comical examples actually uh, of giving and praying and fasting, and he sort of reorients us back to this idea of secrecy in the sense of we don't act to get the praise of men, we would rather just be reoriented towards God and whatever we are doing. Is for the sake of God, right? Whatever we are doing is to exalt him. And the question we might ask ourselves is, why do we seek the praise of men, right? And the reason behind that is, beneath that really is fear, some kind of anxiety, something you're concerned about. And beneath that fear, unfortunately, is a, a lack of faith in God. It's unbelief in who God is saying you are, who God has called you to be, right? So beneath that seeking the praise of men is anxiety. Beneath that is this lack of confidence in God, we could say, right? And so unfortunately, we, we go after security or identity in, in places or after things that we shouldn't go after, it, right? And it's like we are... We are on this journey called adventures in missing the point, right? So, so it, it, it's like we're, we're running after the wrong things. We're seeking after the wrong things, right? And, and so before we jump into the text, right, I, I want you to, to be asking yourself the question, uh, how do I define myself, right? What are those things that I, I can't sort of let go of? They're very integral core to who I am. Right, and, and and just be open to whatever God might say to you as we sort of study along. But I want you to keep examining what is deeply true of me. What are my deepest desires? Right, and what, what are those things that I'm just I just go after? Right, and then we'll come back to the subject of identity. So when I started out on the context, I talked about Jesus starting out uh, his ministry. I'm basically saying, uh, well, Scripture says that from that time on, he began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand or available. Um, the invitation into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God 
is an invitation into deep interpersonal relationship with God. Think of it as the triune God, the Trinity existing. And there is an invitation for you to partake of that deep union. I want you to think about that. I don't want you to rush over that. Think of God inviting you into a deep personal union with himself. He is inviting you to be with him in everything that you do. it's It's a radical different life. See, the invitation into the kingdom of God, that life is the same thing as eternal life. In John 17, 3, probably the only place where eternal life is defined, it says, and this is eternal life, this is Jesus speaking that you may know the only true God and Christ Jesus whom he sent. So again, think of that. God is inviting you today into this union with himself. And I want you to be thinking of that as well as we go into the scripture. Okay. Cool. All right. So I think I've organized my thoughts on that four headings. Um, We'll start with the first one. Like I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just sort of walk through the scripture itself, break it down sort of pick out some things in there, and I'll be relating it to the concept of identity. And then towards the end of the sermon, we'll come back to the idea of identity. Sounds good? All right. So treasures, um, verse 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe I should start by saying, it is actually normal for you to treasure things. I actually think it's part of our structure, our fundamental structure as human beings. And and this is why I say so. When you treasure something, right, it means you place value on it. You adore that thing. That is the language of worship, right? So if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, if Christ saying to us that the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, and to love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying treasure God, right? So the the idea of treasuring, because we can't speak of treasure and not speak of treasury, the idea of us treasuring something is actually fundamental to who we are. It's part of it. It becomes an integral part of how we define ourselves. Right? And so to be clear, before we go deeper into this, to be clear, this scripture is not saying don't be wealthy. You know, don't save things. Don't invest. The scripture isn't talking about that. Right? Uh, um, It's more about how we view treasures and what are those treasures. Right? And treasures don't even have to be material or physical. Right? It, it could be, I could, for example, treasure my reputation so much right, that I'm always placing a certain uh, a, a view of myself out there for people to see. Right? I could treasure relationships. I could treasure my career. Right? I could treasure just about anything. Right? So treasures don't have to just be physical or material. And, and this scripture isn't talking about forbidden uh, having wealth. So scripture is clear about two 
types or two views of treasures, right? Treasures on earth and treasures in heaven, or treasures we lay up on earth and treasures we lay up in heaven. See, for the treasures we lay up on earth, the, the, the idea is you have to keep working to protect them. Hence, that injunction that says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth, uh, moth and rust destroy and thieves break into steel. So it's, it's this idea that you just have to keep working at them, working at protecting them. It's not just that you treasure it, it's that you have to keep on that wheel, kind of like the hamster on the wheel. I wanted to project a video. We just see a hamster running on the wheel and the wheel just cycling. <laughs> right, so that, that's the idea. And the, the question here is, are the things we treasure an end in and of themselves, right? Or is there, are they pointing to something else? Because again, we, we all treasure things. It's normal to treasure things, right? It, across every class of humans, however you want to segment it, we all treasure things, right? We all hold certain things value. But the question is, are they pointing to, are they pointing to something bigger than them or are they just the end? in and of themselves, right? So most often our treasures are good things, the good things we desire, right? They're, they're, they're usually good things. The, the, the struggle comes when we look at what's motivating us or what's in our heart, going back to that idea where Christ is always going to our heart. And, you know, to what extent would we go to acquire these treasures, right? Well, what are we willing to break or destroy or get through to just get this treasure? And, and so the, the point I want to make with treasures on earth is if all treasures are limited to the material, right, to the physical, to the things uh, on this world, and when I say this world, I mean just the social, cultural perspectives, mindset. If that is what all of our treasures are, it would truly be a sad experience because then nothing is truly ours. Right. If, for example, my, my treasure or how I define myself has to do with my performance at work or the accolades I get, then I have to keep doing that. Right? Because the moment someone else is better than me, I'm not okay. Right? The moment someone else gets a pat on the back and I don't get a pat on the back, I'm just not okay. And so it, just, it just becomes that, hopefully you see that cycle, right? The wheel, the hamster just run, running, 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 right? And, and that's, that's what Christ is calling us away from, right? And so on the other hand, we get to treasures that we lay up in heaven, right? And from what Christ laid out there saying, you know, rather lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth nor rust can destroy and where thieves can break into steel. You get this idea that, the treasures you lay up in heaven are treasures that give you peace. There is this settledness. You don't have to worry if someone is going to go grab it, if something is going to happen to it, right? And the point I want to further make is the treasures in heaven, which we'll get to what those are, the, the, it's not only that you have this peace and this settledness, it's that it influences how you see which will get to the idea of the eye being the lamp of the body. It influences your perspective. So you might be wondering, what are these treasures that are to be laid up in heaven? Right? Simply put, the treasure of all treasures is God. There is nothing else. 
right? So the invitation into the kingdom of heaven has as its end God as the treasure, right? We, we've talked about this idea that the greatest gift that God gives is himself because that is the only thing that is secure and eternal. That is the only thing that doesn't require you to keep performing and keep running and keep defining yourself or validating yourself by what people say, whatever goals you've set for yourself, whether you meet them or not, what you possess, or different variants of that. So God is the treasure of all treasures. That is the treasure to be laid in heaven for you. Lest you think I'm just talking, let me read the scripture. <laughs> Matthew 13, 44 says this. The kingdom of heaven is like, the, is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found, now look at what he did. A man found this treasure, covered it up. Then in his joy, so a man found a field, found a treasure in a field, covers up the treasure, and then in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has. Like he gives up everything he has to purchase that field. That is the kingdom of heaven. That is the treasure of all treasures. God is that treasure. And, and, and so being our life in the kingdom of God, which is synonymous with becoming Christ-like, this is the treasure you store in heaven. You see, it is a treasure that was, like a treasure actually that is freely given to you by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? But it's also a treasure bought by his blood which he had planned from eternity past and which he will secure your salvation in eternity future. And so it's a treasure that spans all of that. Where in thinking about it, if we meditate about it, and I need to meditate about this more, there is a settledness that comes on you. Right, so let me read a couple of scriptures as well. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. I just want to highlight what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us, and this idea of God being our treasure. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. Even as he chose us in him, even as he, he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Note that phrase, before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. So from eternity past to the future, we are secured. Romans 8, 30 to 32. And those whom he predestined, right, thinking of something he has done from the past, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified the future. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And I want you to see this part especially. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So Christ died on the cross for you and me, so that the treasure of all treasures, God, can be our Father. Right. So I, I want you to see that even as we see God as our treasure, he sees us as his treasure. Right. He would give his son up for us. Right, on the cross, willingly to do that for our sake. 
So I hope you've seen the extent of God's love for you. And they're seeing that you matter to God. You matter enough to God for him to give up his son. And again, thinking back to what I said about identity, however we define ourselves, I want you to be thinking of that, to see that you matter to God. See, no, no matter how life can be mundane and it seems like it's just a chore, you just sort of do certain things over and over again, you matter to God. No matter how much there is uncertainty and you can re really figure out how life would be, maybe it's your next step, college, what would that look like? Career, marriage, family, kids, whatever it may be, retirement, right? You matter to God. And not just in this world, but for all time. You matter to God. So how then do we store up treasures in heaven? First of all, this is a treasure we have been freely given, God. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and so by being an apprentice of Christ, by accepting that invitation, into the kingdom of God. That is how we, quote, store up treasure in heaven. Right? But God is that treasure. Right? God is that treasure. And, and so at the end, at, in verse 21, I believe, I think it's verse 21, it says, um, wherever your treasure is, there your heart also will be. When I used to read the scripture, I used to read it as wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually the other way around, right? Um, and our heart is the center of our being. It's what sort of gives orientation to our lives, right? And, and the point here is the person who sees God as his treasure sees everything in its true worth and relationship to God. So think of it as God being the center of your world. And so you are able to see everything else in reference to that center. So in placing God first, we rightly locate everything else, right? From the material to the non-material to relationships to people, we rightly place everything else in its rightful place. Uh, here's a quote from a commentary by D.A. Carson that I want to quickly read. The most cherished treasure subtly but infallibly controls the whole person's direction and values. If honor is rated the highest good, then ambition must take charge of a man. If money, then greed takes over. If pleasure, then men will certainly degenerate into self-indulgence. Conversely, those who set their mind on things above God Determining to live under the kingdom norms, discover at last that their deeds follow them. In essence, wherever our treasure is, there our heart also will be. So I hope you're seeing that what we treasure is very much an integral part of how we define ourselves. And what we value has a direct correlation to, to how we see ourselves and what we define ourselves to be. So since what we treasure is very much a posture of the heart, Jesus will use another analogy to get at the same point, right? And that's the analogy in verse 22 to 23, uh, which I titled Perspectives. So in verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
See, almost everything you do with your body, right? You need your eyesight, right? You want to walk, you want to jump, you want to read. It's kind of like your eyes sort of give direction or focus to your body. Hence that analogy of the eye is the lamp of the body because the lamp is kind of like a light, right, that guides you. And if your eye is bad, you can imagine it becomes a struggle to do certain things. And, and so very often in scripture, actually, eyes and heart are equivalent. So you get phrases like set your heart on or fix your eyes on. They're pretty much the same. They're synonymous. So Jesus is essentially making the same point here again. It's almost like he's re-emphasizing that point of what we treasure and who we should treasure. Right. And, and, and so the, the same point is that what we value, you could interpret that as how we see, right? How healthy our eyes are, the perspective, how we see is very much a, a part of how we define ourselves. And, and, and so the one with healthy eyes sees God as his ultimate treasure. That person is relieved of false identities and sees himself or herself as a beloved child of God. That's our identity, a beloved child of God. While the one with unhealthy eye is stuck in darkness and fear, fear of your treasures being stolen or destroyed, fear of not measuring up, right? It, it, you are ever running again on that treadmill we talk about, like the hamster on the wheel, right? Just running, running, running. See, essentially, when we treasure what's of this world, we see everything from a perspective that distorts reality, right? And systematically keeps leading us in the wrong way. So let me give an example. If, if for example, you're addicted to power or fame, or maybe a drug, or just anything else that you know you go after uh, in an extreme way. You tend to see everything else in relation to that addiction. Right? So whatever you, you are addicted to, whatever you truly crave, you tend to see everything else in relation to that. Let, let me use the case of a drug addiction because it's simpler, right? So when you're addicted to a drug, you do everything to get that, even to the detriment of your body. Your soul, your relationships, the opportunities you have, that thing is pretty much your, it just sort of directs you. The same thing with fame or power, right, or anything else. Right? So, again, I hope you see that our perspectives of vision, uh, uh, they're very much integral to how we define ourselves, right? Let, let me quickly draw out something. In... That word that way says, if your eye is healthy, the word healthy in the Greek, I think I can't pronounce it, but I'll leave that. Um, <laughs> but it literally means single, right? Which connotes the single, undivided loyalty to God. But it's also used to, to represent this idea of being generous and liberal, right? Whereas the unhealthy eye is basically the opposite of that. Right. And what I want to draw out here, and I'm just going to read this, is from this text, just looking at that text, verse 21 to 20, verse 22 to 23. From a commentary, let me just read this. Jesus is either saying that the person who divides his interest 
and tries to focus on both God and possessions has no clear vision and will live life without clear orientation or direction. An interpretation that is nicely compatible with the next verse we'll see, verse 24. Or the person who is stingy and selfish cannot really see where he is going. He is morally and spiritually blind. An interpretation that is compatible with what you value or what you treasure. The whole point of me quoting that, in case you get that, is just at the end of the day, it's still about your it's still about your perspective and how you see. It's about what you value. It's about accepting that invitation into the kingdom of God. Because when you do, it changes how you see. It changes what you value. It changes the orientation of your life. So again, so Jesus has basically poked at our heart, right? Talking about what we treasure, how we see. And then he's going to go one layer below that, right? And that's verse 24, which says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let me read a, a, a quote here from John Stott in, in his commentary on this passage. He says, Jesus now explains that behind the choice of two treasures, where we lay up treasures, and two visions, right, how we see, or our perspective, there lies still the more basic choice between two masters. Whom will I serve? Right? It's a choice between God and mammon. That is between the living creator himself and any object that I term money. That word mammon or money actually indicates anything I have confidence in. So I want you to look at it beyond just money. I want you to tie it back to what you treasure, what you value, how you see, how you define yourself. So it's either between God and all those other things. Right? Because when you choose one, then it influences what you value and what you treasure, what you see, and how you define yourself. Right? So the more basic question here, is whom will I serve? So we cannot help but serve what we treasure. Right? It's, it's just normal. Right? We are made to worship, to treasure. And whatever we treasure, right, we will serve and value and try to protect. Right? Hence that parable. Right? The man went in his joy. He covered up the treasure. In his joy, he went. He sold everything to purchase that field. Right? That, that's how we are made. Right? So we cannot help but we cannot help but to serve what we treasure. And the point I want to draw out here is when it comes to choosing whom we serve, there is no middle ground. Right? We can't serve God and any other thing. It it, it doesn't work. Right? There is no middle ground because the requirements actually conflict. Because whatever you treasure, whatever you value, whatever you serve wants to be the center of your world, that center of reference point. So by that very nature, you cannot have God and something else there, right? It just doesn't work. So for example, unless you have placed God first, 
what you will have to do to be, for example, financially secure or impress other people or fulfill your desires will invariably lead you away from God. Unless you have placed God at the center of your being first. Anything else you pursue will lead you away from God eventually. Right, so there is this mistaken belief sometimes in Christian circles, right? That I can say a prayer and be saved, right? But I don't really have to obey God. It's kind of like an optional thing. I leave that to Nick. Let Nick obey God. Right. It, it's, it's that idea that I want Christ as my Savior, but I don't want him as Lord. Right? And, and it's, it's a mistaken idea. It's, it's, it's almost like this idea that there is salvation without apprenticeship or discipleship. There isn't. Right? So when Jesus gave the great commandment, he said, go ye into the world and make disciples, not converts, disciples. Right? Because there is no one without the other in reality. Right? So let me be clear. I'm not saying your work justifies you, not at all. <laughs> I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, over time, as we are in the kingdom of God, we should be submitting to his will. Over time, right, we should be becoming more and more like him, reflecting his character, reflecting who he is. And so, if we are saved, we, we truly learn to work at our salvation with fear and trembling, right? For it is God who works in us, but to will and to walk according to his good pleasure. So in a way, it seems like we are working, but it's really God that's working in us. But the end goal is we are becoming Christ-like again over time, over time, especially for me, over a long time. Right. So A.W. Tozer says this, that there is this notable heresy that has come into being through throughout evangelical circles, the widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as a savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want. Another favorite author of mine, Dallas Willard, says, this heresy, speaking of the same idea, has created the impression that it is quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. Right? Which means, I would like a little bit of your blood, Christ, please, but I don't really care to be your student or your apprentice your disciple, or to have your character. In fact, why don't you just excuse me, Christ, so that I would get on with my life, and because of the prayer I said, I'll see you in heaven. Right? It, it's a false idea. Right? Life doesn't, that isn't what he calls us to be. So yes, we will make mistakes. We will struggle with sin. We will get to the end of ourselves. We will fall, but he will be there to pick us up. And you see, that struggle that you go through that struggle of, oh, I want to press more into God, but it seems like I'm always stumbling. See, that struggle in and of itself actually shows something. It shows that you haven't thrown your lot with the enemy. Because if you have, there is no struggle. Right? And when you are convicted of your mishaps or your missteps or your sins, for me, when my head is right, <laughs> that conviction... There is actually a sweetness to it because it reminds me that God hasn't left me to myself. Hence the conviction. Right? And, and hence this, this openness to him. So my time is almost up. 
We are back to identity. So I'm about to wrap up. Um, like I said, so we've gone through the text and talked about what we treasure, how we see, right? And beneath that, whom we serve, right? And I want to bring it back to this idea of identity. Hopefully you've been seeing some of those threads and all that we've talked about, right? Very often we define ourselves by um, what people say about us or what we want people to say about us, right? what we possess, right? what we've accumulated, uh, our pedigrees, whatever that might be, or what we are doing. Right? What we are doing that tends to give us significance that we can say, this is what I'm doing. Right? And I want you to think about that and sort of locate yourself there. How do you define yourself? Now, if you're like me, maybe all three of those elements of variance are present, but in, in, your, in the season you're in right now, how do you define yourself? By what you have, what you've accomplished, what you want people to say about you, right? or what you're doing. How do you define yourself? And hopefully you see that that ties into what do you value? What are your treasures? How do you see life? And whom do you serve? So just sort of think about that a little bit in terms of where you are. And hopefully yeah, I'm, I'm praying that you see that, again, that you see that image of the hamster on the wheel, right? always running. With any one of those ways we define ourselves, because it is completely dependent on either social constructs, goals that we set that are ever shifting, or what society says. Always, it's always dependent on that. And so, what lies beneath that way of defining ourselves again is fear. Right? When, when I want people to think of me in a certain way, it means I don't want to be found out that I'm actually not that way. Right? Sometimes we're afraid we're just not good enough. And so we perform to get the praise or the acknowledgement of others. Sometimes we're afraid that we don't measure up. And so we continually pursue things. As a way of saying, see the latest thing I've done. Sometimes we're afraid that our lives don't matter. But I want you to always remember the cross. Your life matters. You matter to God. Always. That's why he gave up his son. So we treasure the wrong things and we have a false narrative that affects how we define ourselves or becomes how we define ourselves. So maybe I believe the narrative that that being loved by someone else will bring me this satisfaction and contentment and direction in life. And so we go looking for anyone to love us, just anyone at all. And we throw aside our convictions and our beliefs in that pursuit. But if we've ever gone down that road, right, we remember it's adventures in missing the point. <laughs> right. Now, maybe the, the narrative is I, I need to get a certain level of wealth to be okay, right, to, to, to be respected. But we all know it, it's never enough. Right. So what narratives are you holding on to? How do you define yourself? Right. So just sort of think about that, note that down. And remember that what, whatever lies beneath that narrative is fear. What lies beneath that fear 
is a lack of confidence in God. And what lies beneath that fear is not being okay with where God has you. Not being okay with who God has called you to be, which really is a beloved child of the Most High. Now, that's the better way to define yourself. See, God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. What an honor that is. Right? When you think about that, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That, that is your destiny. That is where you are going. Now, don't get me wrong. I know it can be hard. Everything around you leads you to define yourself in other ways. Right? Everything around you just, just pulls in that direction. And this is why it's important to always come back to the idea that the love of God for you which is supremely shown at the cross, is the answer to the fear beneath our anxieties, the fear beneath how we define ourselves. You see, Jesus went to the cross for you, to die for you, to make you his own. He was delivered up for your sins and raised up for your justification so that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. God loves you. If you don't know God, if you're not familiar with God, you know, just at the end of the service, just talk to anyone be, beside you. Or just come talk to anyone. God loves you. God wants you. God wants to be with you. God wants you to be with him in your day-to-day -day activities. God wants you there. So let me say a couple practical things and then I'll wrap up. Um, how do I remind myself that I'm a beloved child of God? Right, because we can say it all here and, it, you know, you sort of connect, but then you go out there to work and your boss says something and then you're running, right? <laughs> and it's different. Um, in a sense, you could ask yourself a variant of that question. How do I lay up treasures in heaven? How do I see clearly? How do I choose to always serve God, right, in the day-to-day -day activities, right? So a couple of things. Beneath, the main point I want to raise is we, we get to remind ourselves of who we are by interacting with Christ, not as a dead Messiah, but as a living God. And what I mean by that is as you go through your day, do not think my life is just about me and I just need to figure this out. Right? Turn whatever is going on within you, that monologue, turn it to a dialogue. Actually, talk to God. And just talk to him as you would talk to anyone. I know it sounds weird sometimes, you know, you're talking to someone that's not there, <laughs> but he is there. I will talk to him. Right? Turn that monologue into a dialogue. Invite God into your day-to-day -day activities. You will be surprised. One other thing I will tell you is at the end of your day, reflect a little bit. Reflect on the day. Reflect on those things you talk to God about and see what happened. And just keep doing that as a practice. Right? You, you will continue to see the hand of God in your life. Right? Meditate on scripture. This is how we get truth into ourselves. Right? Take your scripture, meditate on it. Two to four weeks, just stay there. Hunker there, think about it. As your day goes by, invite God into the day. Interact with God in the day. And then see what comes of that. And at the end of the day, you know, be with community. Be with God's people. Right, build those right friendships, right, and and just keep pressing into God. 
You see, the desire to please God pleases God. No matter how much you struggle, no matter how much you, you, you struggle with either meditating or spending time with God or what have you. But just keep doing it. Keep being there. And ask God for help. This is not dependent on you. Ask God for help. Okay? Amen. Sorry. I'm over my time a little bit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for your, your, your love. Because without you, really, God, we are. I mean, what do we have? Who are we? And so, God, the prayer today is that we will truly value you. We will see you as our ultimate treasure by way of enjoying you as our greatest pleasure. And I'm praying that we will have the right perspective, that we will see things in relation to you. You are the center of our lives. And that also, God, that we will continually choose to serve you. Even in the difficulties of life, in the areas where we struggle, where we need help, in the areas where we feel alone, that we will continually cry out to you. Seeing you as the one who died for us, who was delivered up for our sins and raised up for our justification. And that you love us through death and back to life. In Jesus' name, amen.